Welcome again to my podcast. Again, if you are returning listener, but also very welcome if it's your first time. But if it's your first time, do check out my earlier episodes. The order doesn't matter at all. It are all different stories. Okay, so in my last episode about the legend of the walking Holy Mary statue, we started unraveling Christian legends. A lot of the Christian legends which are somehow often from the 12th, 13th and 14th century. Like there was something in the water, maybe. Well, there are theories about that, but we're not going to delve into them. Today I am going to tell you a story of the Holy Blood Miracle. Like the miracle from last podcast, it's again from the 14th century. So what's this about the 14th century and miracles? I use this legend to research Christian medieval legends in general, so a few will be mentioned. A few. I'm not going to delve them all up, but I mention just a few which are more or less the same as this miracle. This story is from the village of Bokstel. Again, again, very close to my home, like 14 kilometers away. I like this legend hunting, going in circles from my village and so further and further away. When I hit 10,000 listeners, I can start organizing tours and of course after the COVID-19 business and if I can make time because I am very busy, but just joking. Brabant is beautiful and has a lot of history. So do come check it out. Bokstel is a village in the province of North Brabant. During the story, Bokstel was a village in the Grand Duchy of Brabant, although it was in fact a loan from the Abbey of Echternach and fell under the loans of the uh, German Emperor. So, not really in Brabant, but still it's in Brabant because it's only 40 kilometers away from now. That were different times. The first Lord of Bokstel was Harpert Buchstelle. Name sounds German, but that name Buchstelle somehow became Bokstel. Just imagine how whole this people from Brabant has to speak about Buchstelle. And I can imagine it became Bokstel. Yeah, it sounds much more Dutch. In 1290, a Roman church was built. In this church, the miracle took place. So not in the current St. Peter's Church which was built in 1493, still pretty old though, and it looks nice. During a mass in the St. Peter's Church in the center of Bokstel, a visiting priest, Elgius van den Aker, while having his doubts about his beliefs, accidentally knocked down the chalice with wine during sacristy. The white wine fell on the altar cloth and turned into the blood of Christ. Elgius was embarrassed and took the cloth with him to his house. There he did his best to remove the red stains. But all he did to clean the cloth, he could not get the blood out of the cloth. Because he was ashamed and didn't know what he to do, he kept the cloth. So he kept the altar cloth in his house for many, many, many years. And at his deathbed, he confessed his sin to a priest and asked him to disclose the miracle. He also asked to give the cloth a prominent place in the church. Okay, 
interesting. In 1380, Willem of Merheim, Lord of Boxtel, traveled to Ravenna to speak with Cardinal Pilus de Prata, Archbishop of Ravenna, to let him acknowledge the miracle. So that's the story. No more is left to us. There is an alternative version in which the miller sees the priest cleaning the cloth in the river Dommel. But I doubt that. Uh, I doubt that story because the priest was not from Boxel, it was a visiting priest. And the Dommel is the river floating to through Boxel. Of course, also to Sertogenbos, but this visiting priest came from another vi village where there is no river Dommel. So I doubt this part. In the 1600s, the cloths were transported to Sertogenbos, where they were kept in the St. Jans Cathedral. You know, the cathedral from the story, from the last story. So, surely they were of importance. As you know from the last story, in uh, 1629, Sertogobos was sieged. Yes, so during this siege, the cloths, the cloths with the blood of Christ from Boxtel were in the St. Jan's Cathedral. So, First, they were taken to the St. Michael's Abbey in Antwerp, so they managed to smuggle them out. And later on, in 1652, they were taken to Hoogstraten. Hoogstraten was in what we now call Belgium, but more important in those days, it was a part of the Spanish Netherlands, and thus still Catholic. The cloths had to be protected from the Bilderstorm. During the Bilderstorm, Protestants would ravage Catholic churches and demolish all statues and paintings in which saints or Christ were depicted. Now, it was not allowed. It's kind of the, the iconoclasm, but then different. In 1795, Napoleon Bonaparte restored Catholic churches during his annexation of the Netherlands. From 1799, priests from Boxtel tried to retrieve the cloths from Hoogstraten. They only managed partial and got two cloths back. Since then, these two cloths are kept in the Holy Blood Chapel in the St. Peter's Church in Boxtel. The other cloths stayed in Hoogstraten, where they are taken each year in a procession. This procession in Hoogstraten is one week before the procession in Boxtel, like they talked about it and, and came to a solution, or somehow. So that's short the legend about how Boxtel became a pilgrimage site where they keep the blood of Christ. Still, every year on Trinity Sunday, the Holy Blood Procession is held. 600 volunteers walk in historical clothing through the streets while carrying the cloths with them. I often watch this impressive procession myself. This because my mother is from Boxtel and many, many family members play or have played important and less important roles in the procession. My grandfather used to play the role of St. Paul, one of the major roles, but he's been dead already for, for many, many years. And it's a long time since I've seen the procession. This is mainly because of the weather. You don't want rain on your expensive historical outfit. Since 13 February 2015, the Holy Blood Procession in Boxtel is placed on the Dutch National Inventory of Immaterial Cultural Inheritance. 
So Boxel is still a pilgrimage site? Well, more or less, it is. Not that I know that people come from all over the world to visit uh, the church to see the cloth, no. But people come to the procession and, uh, well, it's still, it's still highly celebrated. So, uh, it's still a pilgrimage site. Okay, now, the Eucharist miracle in Boxel is not unique. There are more of them, like the miracle of Lanciano in Italy, but that's an older one. It's already from the 8th century. Or the miracle from Amsterdam from 1345. Yeah, 1345. Of more recent, the miracle of Sokolka in Poland, which seemed to have happened in 2009. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church has registered a total amount of 160 Eucharistic miracles. Most of those miracles happened in the same time period, but all are outdated by the mother of the Eucharistic miracles, the miracle of Lanciano. So during the 13th and 14th century, there was a discussion about transubstantiation. Whoa, that's a different, different, difficult term, difficult term. So before we really can get going into this discussion, we have to understand what is this transubstantiation. The Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches believe that during the consecration, when the priest says, this is my body and this is my blood, the bread changes in the body of Christ, while the wine changes in the blood of Christ. And it's not figural speaking, but literally. They really believe that the bread changes in, in flesh and the wine changes in blood. So, when there is discussion about this subject, the transubstantiation, the changing of uh, bread in flesh and wine in blood, these miracles are quite convenient because, you see, they were right. Yeah, they kind of prove the transubstantiation. Except the miracle of Boxel, the other three miracles I mentioned, did I mention three? Yeah. I did mention three. The other three miracles are uh, scientifically proven, although they claim they are scientifically proven. But I could not find any any serious relevant scientific publication in in any scientific paper. So yeah, mo more or less proven, but I think by friendly scientists who really, really are into this subject and really, really, really want to believe it's all, all true. I understand that. But how do we call that? Tunnel vision. Yeah, tunnel vision. Probably tunnel vision. Now, transubstantiation is not new. No, it's not. It's not only the changing of the, the bread in, in flesh and the wine and blood. It's more. Historically, there were many, many religions where they believed in some kind of transubstantiation. In fact, in fact, if you want or not, but if you believe in a vampire turning into a bat or a human being turning into a werewolf, that are also examples of transubstantiation, when one substance changes into the other substance. That's literally what transubstantiation means. 
And it's not only a religion. Or maybe, maybe if you think communism is a religion, then you can say it's also, yeah. But during the Stalin years in the Soviet Union, transubstantiation was a part of their biology education. They teach it to the children. Okay, that's strange. Yeah, it had to do something with food and that the, the, the people uh, would believe that if there was not enough food, then that the, the animal food could change into uh, some other food what people could, could eat. Something like that. Stalin really believed, or, or really don't know if Stalin believed it, but he put it in uh, the school materials, in the school books. So that's also a form of transubstantiation. When we take the focus back to our story, the holy blood legend of Boxtels, something else is very interesting. So what's so interesting then? Well, years before the blood miracle, Willem of Merheim, you know, the Lord of Boxtel, arranged a relic from the holy Oda of Canterbury. It seems that you could buy these things. So the relic was brought from Köln, which is a big city in Germany, to Boxtel. But for unknown reasons, this relic was not a success. Not the success that Willem of Merheim wanted, because he clearly wanted that his village Boxtel became a pilgrimage site. So the Holy Blood Miracle, which happened a few years later to a visiting priest, was convenient. Not the local priest, no. A visiting priest. Eligius van den Aker came from S. That sounds strange in English. <laughs> you write it E-S-C-H. And it's a village a few kilometers from Boxel. A village which I find very, very intriguing. But that's a different story, which you can hear and see more about in my YouTube channel. To give you a spoiler, S is probably very old. And was a Roman village. Yeah, they did some nice diggings there and found all kinds of Roman villas, graves, and I think even a temple. But that's a different story. So, the miracle happened to a visiting priest from that other village seven kilometers away. When it would have been the local priest, it would have been easier to ask questions. But you are not going to walk two hours just to ask, hey, mate, what happened? No. People were busy with their lives. They were not like us for working 40 hours a week. It was more like they were working 100 hours a week or even more. So the specific circumstance makes it easier to make up a story. In reality, at last, that's what I think is reality there are three possible scenarios let's talk about yeah. let's talk about the scenarios that i uh, came up with scenario number one it's real the wine changed in blood and i i have to be very very afraid for my punishment when i die okay the second one it was an accident Elihia spoiled the wine and was ashamed for it and the story was convenient, and maybe he started to believe it himself. Well, heck, times were different. Transubstantiation has been there for ages. So people really believed wine would change in blood. So why could that not be? He spoiled the wine, 
he had to believe it changed into blood. So for him, it was blood. Okay, that's the second theory I have. And the third and the theory is, well, that's more a more mean theory. theory. But it could be that the whole uh, story was orchestrated by Willem of Merheim, the Lord of Boxtel, who wanted that his village Boxtel became a pilgrimage site. Or me, maybe, maybe even number four. The whole story is fabricated later. That is because there are no primary sources and the oldest document mentioning the miracle is from 1721. Yeah. So, my gut tells me this is not sounding very scientifically. My gut tells me it's a combination between two and three. The spoiling of the wine by a visiting priest was the ideal opportunity to make up this story and turn Boxtel into a pilgrimage site. So that's just thinking about it. Hey, we have this priest, he spoils the wine, and then later on this is discovered, and this is quite convenient for the Lord of Boxtel, who then makes up the story. Now I am negative. It were different times where people were much more religious than in our days. Maybe Wilm of Merheim, who as a noble probably had a proper education, knew about transubstantiation. And when he knew about this, the stains could be nothing else than the blood of Christ. If, if the story is fabricated, or the story is just a figment of the imagination by very religious people, we will probably never know. Interesting is that while this story happened in Boxtel, it happened 160 times according to the Roman Catholic Church. They have 160 registered Eucharistic miracles. So now, now let's us take those miracles in a broader perspective. Before Christianity, all kinds of pagan beliefs had objects, statues, paintings to worship. With Christianity and the discussion over iconoclasm, which led finally to the split of the Roman Catholic and Orthodox Church, the worshipping of objects changed fundamentally. In the Middle Ages, the worshipping of relics is introduced. The Spear of Christ. A piece of wood from the cross. The head of St. John the Baptist. When you zoom into the subject, you will find out there is enough wood from the cross for an entire forest. And there are about 20 St. John skulls. So, what are we looking at? Mark Strijdonk wrote an excellent book about this subject. Relieken echt of false. Which translates into relics real or falsified. In this book, he describes the scientific researches his uh, research group did on relics in Belgium. In his conclusion, he wrote, because of political or economical reasons, many relics are false. The head of St. Peter is too young, while the skull of Donatus is too old. But there are relics from which the dating is correct. Often relics are more or less from the correct historical period, but of course, there is no proof that they belonged to certain persons. But like the cloth of Boxtel, most relics are from the 12th and 13th and 14th century. When your church, city or village becomes a pilgrimage site, 
You can make serious business out of it. Or boost your career. Don't get me wrong. There were a lot of people who truly believed a miracle has ha had happened. But for other people, it was quite convenient. But also, never forget, relics and indulgences was real business. The church was making big bucks. The relic and indulgence business was one of the main reasons for the religious divide in Europe. And, well, it was the, the one of the important triggers for Luther to start his reaction to the Catholic Church. And what are indulgences? Well, indulgences were a way to buy off your sins with money and buy a place in heaven. Ah, all my sins are forgiven. I have paid money to the church. But what is a relic? Mainly there are primary and secondary relics. A primary relic is a piece from a saint, a skull, finger bone, toenail, you name it. A secondary relic is something a saint used or, or wore. So a piece of cloth from the napkin off, fill in the blank. I don't want to make fun of this. This is serious business. But it happened and uh, it's, it's kind of ridiculous, I think. But yes, it's for different times. People needed a saint to bring them closer to God. God was such an abstract concept. But a saint was once a human being now close to God. So a relic from a saint was kind of a bridge to God. People needed relics and other people needed money or prestige. So the relic business was quite a business. In the metal detecting world, some people know that I like to go out with my metal detector, but in the metal detecting world, people find frequently souvenirs which were bought at pilgrimage sites. That's not a joke. That's that's true. They find all kind of of uh, often they are from lead seals or things that people bought at uh, pilgrimage and even in the 11, 12, 13, 14th century. Yeah. So uh, it was big business. So how to end the story about the legend of the holy blood of Boxtel? Do you or I believe it's the blood of Christ? Was the wine transubstantiated into the blood? I don't believe it. And when you tell me, wait until you've seen it from nearby. I've seen it from nearby. It, many, many years ago, when I was, I think, about the age of 10 or 12. My grandfather once showed it to me before the procession. I told you before he had one of the main uh, he played one of the main characters in the procession so he had access and he took me and my brother and my mother to uh, the shrine and of course the cloths were in the shrine but we could peek through the hole and see the stains saw them from a few centimeters and for me well I was then 10 11 12 Okay, so I accept it. That's the blood of Christ. But the compassion and the fire in the eyes of my grandfather, that, that's, I still remember that. And for him, this was very important. It was the real deal. He 100% believed this was real.
Do I believe it's real? No, I don't. But for me, the claws are authentic. From that time span, I believe they are really from uh, the 1400s. Yeah, that I believe. The shrine is authentic. I believe that too. It's of course later made, but it's authentic. The culture is authentic. The devotion of the people is authentic. But no, it's not the blood of Christ. But is that important? For the people who believe it's real, it's real. If they have comfort in believing in a miracle, that's fine with me. So that's the end of the legend of the Holy Blood of Christ from Bokstel. So I'm now busy with thinking about my uh, next podcast. Um, I have found an interesting legend. It's a bit short and I have to look if I can find more sources. But it's about the werewolf of Orschot. And that triggers me. That's interesting. A werewolf story. Wow. Thank you for your attention. Please check out my other podcasts. And also do check out my YouTube channel.